5: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and
3: you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, known as the Tom Sumner Program, we're going to talk about education reform. With the founder and director of 21st Century Literacy and the author of two books that are available uh, now in paperback, uh, Can We mat- Measure What Matters Most?, Why Educational Accountability Matrix, Lower Student Learning, and Demoralize Teachers. And the other book is called The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy, Why Accountability Metrics in Higher Education Are Unfair and Increase Inequality by J.M. Beach. And uh, Josh Beach joins me by phone. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me
3: um let's let's talk about meritocracy first okay um, what what is meritocracy and and i mean it the the word itself has a connotation that it's probably not a good thing
2: well it it's a very <laughs> interesting uh yeah it's an interesting word with an interesting history because it was it was invented by an english author who was using it ironically. And he, 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 he coined it, just as you said, because um, there's something dark behind it that he was investigating. Now, it came to be a very positive term for, for many people, if not most people in the United States. Uh, but essentially, it's the idea that rather than judge people by any other quality, we should judge people by merit, which, I mean, on the surface, sounds pretty good. Traditionally, people had largely been judged by their class position. Uh, you know, in most cultures, for most of human history, you were born into a class position, and there was no possibility for you to be anything other than what you were born. Uh, you, you, you simply did what your parents did. Uh, fathers did what their sons did, and women were wives and mothers, and that's it in most cultures. Uh, so there wasn't any way for anyone who was born in a lowly status, to ever have a better life. It was impossible, largely. Um, there were certain instances where you could use the military or perhaps the church, uh, maybe government bureaucracy to kind of you know, do better for yourself or your family, uh, but certainly not to go from poor to rich. So the idea of meritocracy is the notion that uh, people shouldn't be bound by class, and later bound by gender or race or any other restrictive social, you know, characteristic, that everyone should have a free and equal opportunity to make the most of their own life, and that everyone should be judged on their own personal merit. And this, this idea was largely based partly on democracy, the development of democracy, and especially in the 19th century, but also the development and expansion of schooling. Schooling, when it was uh, made available for larger groups of people in the 19th century, traditionally schools were not all that important or central to societies. Very few people went to schools. Usually, uh, privileged young men went to went to school, and no one else. But when schooling became more of an engine of of, uh, social uh, development and, and economic development and political necessity in democracies, and more people went to school, the idea was hey, schools are a place where students can go and they can learn knowledge and they can learn skills and the very brightest will learn a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills and they'll go high up the schooling ladder and then they're going to exit school with a lot of talent and then they'll be able to use that talent in the marketplace or in business or in the military and make a lot of money and have a great life. And so they are going to rise on their merit. Now the problem is Things don't always work out according to plan, according to you know the ideal, and so in many ways, when people were turning towards this ideal of merit and judging people by merit, kind of started in England uh, in the 19th century and then developed in America. The problem was that schools really weren't places where uh, anyone could go and anyone could learn, you know, anything they wanted to. And even if you were able to navigate school, which many couldn't, um, it didn't always equate a better life for you. It didn't always open up doors when you went into the labor market, especially if you were non-white or you were a woman, uh, if you were born poor, if you had the wrong accent, uh, if you were an immigrant. Um, Schools didn't really work fairly, both inside of schools and then the educational credential that you earned when you left school to go find a job. You weren't always equally rewarded for the schooling that you had or the skills that you had. People were still looking at you based on your color and your creed and your religious outlook and your, what your parents did. And, and so uh, meritocracy kind of became uh, a mixed bag that for certain people, you know, it enabled them to kind of say, hey, I don't have to be bound by my parents and my traditions, and I can work hard and, you know, make a better life for myself. But for other people who, you know, weren't necessarily afforded the same possibilities. You know, some students, they're born in very poor areas still to this day in the United States, and and, uh, residential segregation is is worse than it has ever been in this country. And so there are many kids that are born in racially segregated, very poor areas that have very low property taxes. They go to underfunded schools that don't have a lot of trained teachers. They're not getting the same education as someone who was born in a very rich, upstate let's say New York, you know, the Manhattan neighborhood that have the best schools in the country with the best teachers filled with resources, they're both going to school. They're both, you know, let's say in fifth grade or eighth grade, Uh, you know, they're both in America, but they're not getting the same education. So therefore, it's not fair to say that they both have equal chances. And likewise, when they, you know, go on through high school and graduate, They both don't have equal chances of, number one, learning everything they need to know in order to go to college, and number two, have equal chances to get into the best colleges. And so that inequality that kind of starts before school still impacts students during school, and it definitely impacts students once they leave school to go in the labor market. So meritocracy, it's a great idea. It's just we're not there yet. And it often turns around and ends up blaming people for circumstances beyond their control.
3: Is there a significant difference between the terms schooling and education?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big difference. And and many people conflate the two. They think they're the same, you know. And that's because when we think common sense about education, most of us think of schools because that's the institution where we all have gone to be educated. And so for most people, they kind of think that education only happens in schools, and schools were invented to educate people. Uh, they don't often think about how education, which is the process of learning and using learning in order to enable us as human beings to accomplish goals, that is an inborn biological process. We're all born to learn. We naturally Educate ourselves and, and our species, our, our parents, educate the young. it is a necessity for, for us as human beings that we need education to survive. Uh, human beings when we're born we're born one of the most helpless species on the planet that we have a very long time you know until the age of four or five we're where children they, they can't survive on their own. They need adults or other people in their community to teach them things to help them to survive to feed them, to clothe them. So education is just central to us as humans, for us to survive and thrive. Education is that process of learning about where am I living? You know, how do I find my food and my shelter? How do I find the love and care and, and the development that I need? How do I find, you know, um, high-quality activities that are going to broaden my mind and to, and to teach me things about the world? How do I How do I solve the immediate goals in my environment so I can live a better life? Schooling is different. Schooling is an institution that was uh, created for largely political and economic reasons. Uh, the ancient Chinese really invented schooling as we know it. And then uh, in the 19th century, uh, a German culture called Prussia kind of developed a, a very structured system of bureaucratic levels of you know, grades and moving through grades to earn credentials. And that model spread around the world. And so when we think about schools... School is a place where you have to go, by law, and school is a place where you are stamped by officials for following the rules, and you must follow the rules and do what you're told to do, and you go through these grades, and then you exit school for either more school or to get a job, so it's kind of a, a ritual, a tradition that we, we do. Now. The irony is that not a lot of education actually takes place in schools, because so much of it is forced. You know, kids again have to go by law, and as every teacher knows, you know, there's a lot of kids, and sometimes the majority of the students in your classroom they don't want to be there. <laughs> Especially, you know, you're talking about adolescents at seven thirty in the morning; uh, they don't want to be there. You know, and and a student that doesn't want to be in the classroom, a student that doesn't want to learn, is not going to learn, and so. Teachers in schools have to negotiate a very precarious situation where they have a bunch of young people that their job is to give them knowledge and then to evaluate their performance and then to pass them along to the next grade. But most of these people, they don't want to be there. They don't want to do what the teacher wants them to do, what the school system wants them to do. And what do what, what uh, young people want to do, especially adolescents, well, they just want to have fun. They want to hang with their friends. You know, their social environment is often much more important to them than school or even their parents. Um, And so teachers have to kind of negotiate with their students to try to get them to do something that looks like education, so that when administrators come by or they have to take these standardized tests, you know, uh, the teacher can say, hey, I'm doing a good job, I'm I'm doing my job. Uh, But what often happens in the classroom is more of a ritual, more of a facade. Uh, For many people, when they go to a church on Sunday morning, they're not really there for spiritual reasons. They're there to kind of satisfy this ritualistic traditional requirement. I'm supposed to be sitting here in this pew for 60 minutes, you know, singing these songs and listening to these words out of the person's mouth in front, and then I go home and and enjoy my day. Uh, A lot of people don't want to be there, but they know it's important, and, and they know it's expected of them. Same thing with school. We go there because it's expected of us, we have to go, and plus our parents are going to get fined by the government, you know, by local law law enforcement if we don't go. So school is more of an institution. It's much more like prison uh, than it is, you know, uh, the idea of of freely learning and and growing as an individual.
3: Sadly, for a lot of kids, it's uh, the last institutional stop before prison.
2: Right, for some it is. And again, in in a society where not everyone is given the same amount of resources, uh, the same amount of opportunities in their local environment to, you know, have enough food, uh, to have, you know, dedicated um, adults and and, and other people to guide them uh, with no job opportunities, you know, parents that are out of work, there, there aren't, I mean, if you're a young kid in a in a poor urban environment, for example, you know why would you go to school? I mean, what's the purpose? It, it's not going to help you. You know, you're not going to college. You know, you, you don't want to be there. Your friends hate school. School is this negative place, and so you're going to do whatever it takes to kind of avoid either going to school or doing anything productive in that school. Um, and so it's just it's it's not a priority for a lot of kids because they know it offers a false hope, and they see through that. You know, especially adolescents, they're very smart, and they kind of see how our institutions, you know, are more about stamping people and and sorting people instead of helping people.
3: Josh, I have to take a break here in a minute. Um, can you stick around so we can talk about this some more? You bet. All right, my guest is uh, Josh J.M. Beach. Is he is the founder and director of Twenty First Century Literacy. And the author of two books that are available now in paperback The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy, and Can We Measure What Matters Most? And we're going to talk about some of what's in those books with uh, Josh and uh, Education Reform when we return. If you're listening to us on. Uh, WFOV, our Voices Radio 92.1 LPFM, Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more about education reform with Josh Beach right after this.
1: Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark with Tom Sumner.
6: Visit mi.gov slash AG complaints for your connection to consumer protection.
5: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananik, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about education reform with J.M. Beach, founder and director of 21st Century Literacy and the author of two books, now in paperback, The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy and Can We Measure What Matters Most? Um, Josh is uh, joining me by phone. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that.
2: Oh, no problem, Tom. My pleasure.
3: Um, I keep using phrase education reform and we hear that phrase a lot in and out of the world of politics and, and public discourse and debate. Um, are, are we really talking about school reform and does education need reforming and who should be doing it?
2: Yeah that's a great question uh, and there, there isn't a simple answer but yeah essentially when people talk about educational reform what they're really talking about is school reform. And when they're using the word reform, you know, different people have different motives and different definitions of what they want to be reformed. Um, here, here in Texas, the, there's a push to stamp out all of the supposed pornography in all the books in, in the libraries in Texas. Um, and a lot of teachers are very unclear about uh, what pornography happens to be in these books. And, and, the, and books.
3: that's always worked so well in the past.
2: Yeah, and yeah, (laughs) trying to root out whatever you don't agree with or or think is dangerous. So reform, it's just, I mean, it's another word for changing things. And different people, often politicians uh, or politically motivated uh, actors, um, they have something that they think is going wrong with their community or their country, and so they want schools to change in reflection to whatever the problem is they think is occurring. Now often uh, the problems that politicians or politically motivated people are trying to root out uh, they aren't actually problems. some some are not actually real, uh, people chasing a lot of uh, paper tigers or myths. Um, sometimes the the problems are very real, uh, but people don't fully understand what the problem is, what's causing the problem, therefore they don't really understand what the solution is. So sometimes people are addressing, a problem like low test scores one uh, really what they should be addressing are low resources um, an impoverished community um, that often the cause of low test scores and underperforming schools you know in terms of the standardized test that we use to measure those schools the low test scores are not a reflection of the inability of students to learn it's not a reflection of the inability of students to actually perform on standardized tests, even though that doesn't really help students. It's more a reflection of the environment surrounding those students, whether or not they have enough food to eat, the right kind of food, whether or not there's, they feel secure and safe at home, uh, whether or not their the communities are plagued by violence and crime or mismanagement, uh, whether or not they have enough books in the library, if they have tutors at home, if they have anyone watching them you know, when, they, when they leave school because their parents, both parents are working long hours. Um, and so we need to understand that at that, uh, education reform, school reform, you know, there are a lot of real problems that we need to address, but too few people in the limelight in the spotlight are really addressing real important problems and have data to back it up. that uh, often educational reformers, school reformers, they're just using a lot of vague words and ideas. And, and often based on common sense or myths or what they're reading in the newspapers or hearing on, you know, on TV. Um, so, yes, schools have been uh, the subject of reform proposals and initiatives for as long as there have been schools, to be quite honest. Um, and the irony is that schools, they don't change much. That when you go into a school, you, you see a teacher, you see, I mean, they they changed a, a bit over the the last couple of years with the pandemic, which kind of forced schooling to happen via technology, which is a whole other topic in and of itself. But the basic activities that go on in the classroom haven't changed a whole lot over the last two hundred years in this country. Well, let me. Yeah, I we have. Oh, go ahead. Please.
3: Yeah, let let me uh, jump in here, Josh, and ask you a couple of things. Um, one, shouldn't how much of schooling is preparing students for lifelong learning which in the earlier segment we talked about a little bit human nature to, right. to explore and learn and and to educate themselves how much of it is preparing them for that and how much of it is imparting information um, that can be measured
2: right, yeah, so I mean much of what goes on in schools, much of what is always going on in schools it, it, rarely, if ever uh, does a student learn something useful in in a school classroom. I can think of my own experiences, I'm sure you can think of your own experiences, you know i I can't really recall anything coming out of the mouths of my teachers or the the textbooks that I read that was useful for anything in my future life other than, you know, studying for another exam, either in that class or another class, for more schooling. So uh, rarely do students actually learn useful information. that helps them understand their own life, transform their own life, achieve their own goals. Now, what goes on in classrooms, what have always gone on in classrooms, is, is students are presented with information from a teacher, and they're told to basically memorize it. Um, And so partly the lesson that they're learning is do what you're told, you know, follow commands. The other uh, lesson that they're learning is powerlessness. I'm not in control of the situation. I don't want to be there. I'm forced to be here. How do I make this stop? Well, I just got to do what this person tells me to do. And, and, And then eventually it's all going to go away and I'm going to be able to have some time to myself. So they're learning powerlessness. They're learning, I, I don't have a choice, and I just got to do this, and you know, make make them happy. You know, do something to make them stop looking at me and force me to do this. And then others, you know, the 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 other lesson that we're learning here is, is just to memorize information short term. You know, I, I don't want this information in my brain. I'm I'm just doing this because I have a test to take, and I have to take this test, and this test is going to determine whether or not I can go to the next grade and stay with my friends. And so I'm just going to fill up my brain with this information, short-term, and then I'm going to put it on that test, and then I'm going to forget all about that information. And, you know, a week or two later, it's like that information was never in my brain to begin with. So in this process, you know, how much of this process can we actually measure? Well, a little bit, but not a whole lot. You know, we can measure the bubbles on a standardized test. You know, we can measure the words that a student is using in in, in an essay. We can measure certain things if they're doing an activity uh, that can be seen or a science experiment that can be seen. But, you know, if if we're after learning, you know, in terms of the mental process in a student's brain, we can't see that, we can't measure that. And we don't know, you know, it took a a long, long time. For example, I was just talking about, you know, students feeling powerlessness and, 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 uh, you know, obedience to authority. It wasn't until really the 1960s and 70s that social scientists began to study, you know, the real experiences of real students in the classroom to discover, hey, you know, we always assumed that students were learning in the class, you know, (laughs) that all these tests and exams, that somehow this was good for students in society. And they were like, no, it's actually not really working the way we thought it was working, you know, that, that these students are actually, you know, very fearful and scared and anxious and... And they're just doing this because they're told to. They don't understand why and what they're spo- and it's just going in short term. So there's a whole lot about the student experience. There's emotions and, and their feelings and you know and what they're actually you know what they take away from the experience versus you know what we see on an exam paper. And so much of any human activity, whether it's in a schoolhouse or anywhere else, we can't see most of what's going on. Therefore, we can't really measure most of what's going on. You know, think about if some relationship counselor, you are having trouble, you know, with your husband or wife, and someone said, okay, we need to measure everything going on in your life so that we can determine exactly what the problem is, and then we're going to tell the person, okay, more of this or less of that. It's, it, it's just nonsensical. You, you couldn't, it, it couldn't be done. You know, you, you, there's just so much going on between two people in a relationship that can't be seen, there's no way to measure, and someone's going to be sitting there 24 hours a day, you know, gathering data somehow on you and your your husband or wife in your house, you know, how is that going to work? Well, the same problem occurs in the school classroom, you know. No one is in there gathering data 24 hours a day, observing all of the students and what's going on and trying to get into their head and, you know, using various scientific methods to try to measure brain activity. I mean, that is just impossible. And to the extent that we could do some of that, it would be really expensive and time-consuming. So the whole quest to kind of gather all this data and that somehow the data is going to tell us objectively what we should or shouldn't be doing, it's a myth.
3: I, you, you mentioned something earlier about we probably both have uh, examples of, of things that um, – that seemed to work or or something that we took away from our education as opposed to you know just memorizing reciting and dismissing and I I immediately thought of one class hour Uh in one class (laughs) in my ninth grade year that was so profound uh-huh. That it has applied to almost everything I learned something so significant that I remember exactly what and when it was and and who That's it great. was that imparted that information and and it was just simply a demonstration about how difficult it is to get um, uh, witnesses in a in a jury trial uh-huh. um, <clears throat> to impart. Accurate information,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and it was it was phenomenal. I, I mean, the teacher did a demonstration, and then you know called on the class to, um, you know, write up what they had witnessed, mm-hmm. and there were thirty different answers.
2: Right, right, yeah,
3: and it was phenomenal.
2: It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, and, and it was and, and did phenomenal. Did you fully Josh, appreciate that at the time, or did you think you you more fully appreciated later
3: i think I, I think my appreciation grew as i saw mm-hmm. how much it informed how right. i take information in right and That's and a it, great
2: example
3: yeah, yeah yeah it was it was absolutely phenomenal and so out of all my years of schooling i remember that one hour as being impactful in So many different ways. I mean, the way I read a newspaper, the way I hear an interview or a story that someone tells, and and I you know it just I so completely understand now because of that demonstration how perceptions play into the information people share.
2: Right, and and part of what you're saying too is that you mean. It was later in your life as well where you were in an environment where that knowledge had, had used to you. In Salence, so it was important. It helped you understand a new situation in the future. And and it sounds like, you know, you were, you were coming back to that same topic over and again, and you were reinforcing what you had originally learned. It was, you know, being remembered in your brain and reinforced in your brain. Um, and 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 it it, it kind of it, the 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 importance grew as your awareness of that topic grew, and you know the way that you use that information grew. You know, there's just so much. You know, what we we learn things at the time, we experience things. You know, we could be traveling. You know, something that our parents said to us, something we just observe on a street corner. But later we realize, hey, you know, I I remember that, and I I remember learning something, and in seeing that, or reading that, or experiencing that, or hearing that from my teacher. And that helps me understand this situation. And then, you know, if you come back to it again and again, then the importance of that information, that knowledge grows. But it, it really points to the fact that we, you know, as individuals, we need to be motivated and aware to, to use knowledge, you know, to, to uh, enact our learning. It's a tool. If it stays in the toolbox, it's of no use to anyone. We have to use that tool. We have to bring it out of the toolbox every once in a while and put it to use. And so too much of what goes on in schools is students aren't taught, hey, you know, you never know when this could help you. And, and a lot of students, they aren't actually taught how to use information. You know, for example, the lesson that you learned, if you, I don't know if you've ever been on a jury, but it would be, you know, important if you were on a jury or you were covering, you know, a, a trial on, you know, on your radio show or commenting on a newspaper program or talking with your neighbors, where you could use that information, you bring out that tool, and then you could help other people understand the you know the the situation in front of you.
3: I've talked Uh, to a number of historians that are frustrated with the way history is taught in terms Uh of being you know battles and names and places and dates um, as as opposed to uh, you know telling the various stories of the people who lived in those times and and it it just it makes me wonder, and and of course I, I want to get back to the the topics in your books, and and especially uh, move on to the one where you talk about accountability metrics in uh-huh. higher education, because I have a phrase I've been <laughs> using in recent years that Ph.D.s aren't what they used to be, um, and. <laughs> and, I, and I mean it to be lighthearted and to say that, you know, even people who have letters, their expertise is questionable, which is a throwback to that lesson I talked about earlier. Um, but aren't we sort of turning community colleges and universities into high schools by applying the same kinds of metrics?
2: We are. I mean, in many ways. The emptiness, the empty ritual that you see in K-12 through schooling, the short-term information, memorizing it, taking meaningless tests, you know, uh, filling in bubbles, um, that's pretty much what higher education has become uh, at the community college level and at the university level at some of the best universities. Um, I'm, I'm currently – I went back to school for my MBA during the pandemic, and I can tell you that it is all standardized tests and, and just – useless information um, that you know I, i'm I'm educating myself by reading all these books that my professors aren't talking about uh, and what I do in my class is just fill in a bunch of bubbles largely uh, that is not helping me at all uh, for my long term goals but it's just this ritual um, that uh, schooling has become just you know tests and grades and there's no actual concern by professors about you know, even getting to know their students, let alone, you know, helping them learn, um, that knowledge is just becoming this kind of ritual. Um, well, it's it's uh,
3: almost as if it's credentialing for credential's sake.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and, and to a large extent it is, and even at the Ph.D. level, um, that, you know, it, it largely boils down to, you know, again, following orders. Uh, I was in a Ph.D. program. I don't have a Ph.D., largely because I didn't want to just mindlessly do what my you know, chair told me to do. And we had a big disagreement. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm paying a lot of money. I want to learn, and I want to have some say in my learning. And, and these are the things that I'm interested in. And he was outraged that I had the temerity to question his authority and <laughs> to assert that you know I should have a say in my own learning. That To him, that was just beyond the pale. And he did some, some pretty nasty things, including uh, just taking away all of my funding because uh, I didn't do what he told me to do. And so, therefore, and this was right during the, uh, the Great Recession uh, that he took away, You know, because I, I had school being paid for um, through a fellowship and, and working at a research institute. And he took it all away because he didn't like me. He, he didn't like my response and him questioning the authority, and I had no money to pay for school anymore, and I had to drop out. And so I didn't get my Ph.D., Uh, The irony is, is I went ahead and did the project, and I published a book, and it was a history of the community college. Um, And I'm very proud of that achievement, and that could have been my dissertation. But, you know, my teachers didn't care about me and my objectives and what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I mean, when you go to school, it's about getting this magic piece of paper and just following this prescribed ritualistic set of objectives to get that piece of paper, and, again, the whole idea that a person like me would want to learn something and that I had goals for myself and that, you know, I wanted to have some say, and that was just, what? Well, <laughs> that's, do that's, what? That's we pretty, don't do that here, you know? That's you pretty radical, place. You, you, you You don't understand, you know, what, what college and university is all about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is this empty, I mean, think about a high school diploma. You know, what does that actually mean? I mean, and, and you think about, you know, what's going on in our high schools right now with all of the standardized testing and, and the way that, you know, so many subjects have been crowded out of the curriculum, including a lot of you know useful vocational subjects, that, you know, students, they don't learn much of anything in high school. And they earn that diploma, and then most of them go on to college. And what we're finding over the last couple decades is that the majority of high school graduates that go to college have to retake high school subjects because they don't actually have the knowledge. They're in remedial education. Um, The majority of uh, college freshmen have to take uh, a high school level writing class or reading class or math class because they they don't have those basic skills in in order to be successful in college. And so we can think about how devalued the high school diploma has become. And because we have so many college graduates, you know, graduating high school is not special anymore. It 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 doesn't it doesn't really help you. Um, It doesn't open any opportunities in the labor market. And so, so much of of you know, getting a good job and having a good life, it's dependent upon having the right right pieces of paper, Uh, and and showing that to your employer. But the irony is is that for a lot of students, and I can attest to this in my own life, you know. The, the pieces of paper that I've gotten, you know, with my degrees, they don't always help me do my job. Rarely, actually, do they, have they ever helped me do my job. Um, that So many people, they get a degree, but they don't, number one, they you know might get an accounting degree and go work in accounting. And so in that particular field, a lot of those mathematical techniques of accounting are going to be directly applicable to their job. But you get an English degree or a history degree or a political science degree or a biology degree. Or oh, a computer Or a computer, computer, and the job you get, you might not use anything that you learned in college. And so, I mean, but you needed a degree to get the job, but it doesn't actually help you do the job, you know. Um, And so it's not really maximizing your skills or knowledge or, or even the wage that you could be earning on that job. And so one of the things that most students don't realize is that you really have to kind of plan ahead, you know, match your degree, with the kind of job you want to get, and and to really make sure that that job is going to exist in four or six years when you leave school. Uh, Because when you, you you know, you get a job that isn't tied to your specific degree, that degree doesn't really help you other than getting the job because you have to, as one of the requirements, have a degree, you know. And so it it is, there's so much of this kind of empty ritualism that it's just kind of a, a badge. I have my gold star, you know. Okay, you you can come over here and we're going to process you now because you have a gold star. If you don't have a gold star, well, we can't touch you because you don't have a gold star, you know.
3: Well, the books are The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy and... Uh, can we measure what matters most available in paperback by J.M. Beach Josh Beach uh, is is my guest Josh um, we got to wrap things up and I feel like we're just getting started I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about obviously the books are a great place to start um, but where they might find out more about you and your work past present and future do you have a website
2: Uh, yeah, they can go to my personal website. Very easy, jmbeach.com, dot com. W W W J M Beach B E A C H dot com.
3: Well, that is easy. <laughs> so what's what's next for you, Josh?
2: Uh, doing a lot of radio right now. Uh, kind of planning, um, you know, next research endeavor. Um, working to promote the 21st century literacy. Trying to find some grants so that we can do more teacher training, which is uh, a bit, been a bit hobbled by a little pandemic we've had globally. Um, <laughs> it hasn't really been possible to go into schools and work with teachers lately, uh, but hopefully once that subsides that there will be more opportunities to share with teachers, you know, better ways to uh, educate uh, their students, promote learning, to use data responsibly and validly, and to try to, you know, navigate that uh, Uh, school reforms that get thrown at them yearly, daily, monthly.
3: Well, Josh, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, keep up the good work.
2: Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Take Uh, care. Take care.
3: And uh, thanks again to Josh Beach. We'll have more of uh, the Tom Sumner program after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in. We have some messages online as well.
4: Hey, this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now.
7: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID 19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too.
6: Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
3: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
4: Get on a bus because one hippopotami is two hippopotamus, and if you have two goose, that makes one geese. A pair of mouse is mice, a pair of moose is me. paranoia is a bunch of mental blocks, and when Ben Casey meets Kildare that's called a paradox, (laughs) when two minks fall in love with all their heart and soul, you'll find the plural of two minks one mink stole. Mm-hmm. Singulars and plurals are so different, bless my soul. Has it ever occurred to you that the plural of half is whole? <laughs> Bunch of tooth is teeth A group of foot is feet And two canaries make a pair They call it a parakeet A paramecium Is not a pair A parallelogram Is just A crazy square (laughs) Nobody knows just what A paraphernalia is (laughs) And what is half a pair of scissors It's a single (laughs) sciss With someone you adore you should find romance. You'll pant and pant once more and
3: it up for another edition of the Tom Sumner program, another one that went by surprisingly fast, as they often do. I want to say thanks to uh, Josh Beach for sharing information from his books uh, Can We Measure What Matters? and The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy. Also, what an interesting conversation with Karu Papritz. Uh, former Hollywood filmmaker and award-winning author of The Legacy Letters, talking about his experience in filmmaking very timely uh, in the wake of that, that horrible, tragic shooting accident on the film set of Rust involving uh, actor Alec Baldwin that we've been hearing so much about this last week or so. And uh, before that... Um, Fascinating post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family from uh, best-selling author Frank Schaefer. The new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. More of a laundry list than a title, but uh, it really gets at what's, uh, what's in the book. A fascinating uh, conversation, to be sure. And uh, as I mentioned, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I will be back tomorrow with uh, some very interesting conversations. In fact, we're going to talk about um, filmmaker Otto Preminger with uh, the author of uh, a new book, The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, Foster Hirsch will be joining me and. uh kicking off the weekend a little early with that and much much more tomorrow on the tom sumner program that's smoking george winters tickling the ivories let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room but as i mentioned i'll be back with more of the tom sumner program tomorrow at nine o'clock so in the meantime have a great day and uh good night everybody